Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, Dan Ambender here. It's time to dive back into our comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series co-chaired by doctors Agnes Kogso, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. These are organizations with incredibly committed people who work tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode description. Remember, Cardi Nerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free CMB using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. All right, enough for me. Do enjoy. Welcome, Cardio Nerds, to the latest installment of our ACHD series. Today, we'll be discussing, drum roll, please, coarmation of the aorta, the sixth most common congenital heart defect, accounting for about 68% of live births with CHD. We are happy to have two very special guests on our episode today, Dr. Ari Cedars, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Program at Johns Hopkins, and Dr. Natasha Wolf, the Adult Congenital Heart Disease Fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on today. I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Ari Cedars. Dr. Cedars received his undergraduate degree in history from the University of Texas at Austin. He then went to medical school at the University of Texas in Houston, followed by internal medicine residency at the University of Michigan and cardiology fellowship at WashU in St. Louis. He joined faculty at WashU and thereafter moved to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas and is now director of the ACHD program at Johns Hopkins Medical Center. In addition to seeing patients, Dr. Cedars is a member of the Alliance for Adult Research and Congenital Cardiology, or AARCC, and is one of the heads of the ACHD Heart Failure and Fontan Committee in the Action Learning Network. Dr. Cedars' research focuses on mechanical circulatory support and transplant and ACHD, patient reported outcomes, and advanced patient phenotyping. Thanks for having me, everyone. So Dr. Cedars, as an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in ACHD. That's a good question. I didn't actually plan to do adult congenital heart disease when I went to cardiology fellowship. I actually thought I wanted to do basic science research, but I started to work with Phil Ludbrook, who you may or may not have had the opportunity to meet since you've been at WashU. I think he's semi-retired now. I know him pretty well. He's great. He's, he's a great guy. When I went to work in the basic science lab, which I did for four years as a fellow there, I asked Dr. Ludbrook if I could continue to do clinical work with him in clinic. And as you know, he used to take care of the majority of the adult congenital heart disease patients there. And so I was exposed through his clinic and I really enjoyed those patients. I enjoyed the clinical challenges they presented and so when I decided to return to the clinical side of medicine, I asked Doug Mann, who was the chief of cardiology at the time, if he would allow me to do an additional year of training at the pediatric hospital there, St. Louis Children's Hospital. He kindly agreed, uh, provided that I round on the weekends for everybody else. 
And so I did so. And then I joined the faculty as an additional member of the ACHT team thereafter. Awesome. Dr. Sears and Wolf, thank you so much again for joining us today. We're so excited to learn all about the anatomy, pathophysiology, and long-term management of patients with coarctation of the aorta. Dr. Cedars, we have been really looking forward to having you on the show for a long time. In fact, over a year ago, we interviewed Dr. Jose Madrazo, one of your friends, who did a spectacular episode on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy way back in the beginning. At that time, he said, you know who's really good? My best buddy, Ari Cedars. And then when you signed on to come to Hopkins, like every day, he's like, Ari's coming, Ari's coming, Ari's coming. And finally, when you came, he got so uh, happy and he's one of my close friends and one of my mentors. And so it really brought a light to us. So anyways, this is a real treat. I, I can I can vouch for that. I remember in the very early days, Dan said, oh, this new guy just came for ACHT, Dr. Cedars. He's amazing. We have to have him on the show. So I think the invitation is about a year late, but definitely a better late than never. Well, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I hope I can live up to expectations. I have no doubt. That being said, we have some great patients to staff with you from the CardioNerds ACHD Clinic. But before we meet them, can we talk a little bit more about the anatomy of coarctation? Sure, Dan. Coarctation of the aorta is, strictly speaking, a congenital narrowing of the aorta. Most commonly, we see these located at the insertion of the ductus arteriosus, just distal to the left subclavian artery. There are several other variants, however, and that can include discrete thoracic lesions, log segmental defects, tubular hypoplasia, and more rarely, a complete interruption, or it can be located in the abdominal aorta. So while coarctation can be severe, it's usually well tolerated in utero because about two-thirds of cardiac output flows through the PDA into the descending thoracic aorta and will bypass the coarctation, which typically occurs at the constriction at the isthmus. After birth, however, the increasing amounts of cardiac output must bypass this constriction, and the severity of the narrowing correlates with the amount of added afterload beyond what we would expect to see in normal hemodynamics. And the consequences vary depending on this severity from mild hypertension to overt heart failure. So we won't go too into depth with the law of Laplace here because we want to keep everybody awake and listening, but the mechanisms that the heart can use to compensate for this extra afterload are one, hypertrophy, and two, increasing the LV dimension. So neither are great for a super young patient. Lastly, and perhaps the best known from our anatomy classes in medical school, the circulation may compensate by developing collateral blood flow, and this can involve the intercostal, internal mammaries, and scapular vessels to circumvent the coarctation. Do you have any other thoughts, Dr. Cedars? No, I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary of the anatomy. I would only mention that coarctation is obviously not binary. It's a spectrum. And so it, the severity of clinical presentation is related to the severity of the obstruction. And I think that becomes clinically relevant, as we'll see later on in this podcast. Well, there's no better way to do so than to get down right to it to talk about individual cases. So let's move on to our patients. Archie Cart is a 45-year-old man who is presenting for a second opinion. He was diagnosed with hypertension in his 30s, He's had years of progressive dyspnea on exertion accompanied occasionally by chest pain. He underwent coronary angiography about five years ago and was told it was normal. More recently, he's developed some dizzy spells. He denies lower extremity edema, orthopnea, or PND. On exam, he does have a three out of six systolic murmur at the left sternal border that radiates to his back. Natasha, what are your initial thoughts when approaching a patient like Mr. Cart? 
Well, it sounds like we have an otherwise healthy man who was diagnosed early in life with hypertension, who's now presenting with symptoms of dyspnea on exertion, chest pain, and dizziness. He also has this strange murmur on exam. So one of my first thoughts is what evaluations has he had, including secondary causes of hypertension, given how early the onset of his hypertension was. Coarctation of the aorta is one of the potential causes for secondary hypertension, and the description of the murmur is suspicious for this. So I would wonder if you happen to check four extremity blood pressures and also all four extremity pulses on your exam. It's a great question, Natasha. I'm glad you asked. But before I give you that, I'll just direct our listeners to CardioNerds episodes 96 and 97 for our discussions with Dr. Laffin about hypertension in general and a comprehensive approach to secondary causes of hypertension. But returning to our case in particular, our blood pressures were 145 over 92 on the right and 148 over 88 on the left. Like blood pressures were 118 over 81 on the right and 115 over 83 on the left. He had two plus palpable radial, femoral, and tercellus pedis pulses bilaterally, but there is a brachiofemoral delay of approximately one second. Wow, this is highly suspicious for coarctation of the aorta, which is pretty rare to see and diagnose in adulthood. Natasha, I understand coarct is pretty rare, not on my first pass for secondary causes of hypertension. Can you hit us with some epi? How common is coarctation? Well, the incidence is around 7% of patients with CHD, which correlates to about 1 in 2,500 live births. And it has a slight male predominance with around 1.5 to 1 ratio. Interesting. Natasha, are there any clues on exam or other lesions we can look for on imaging that occur commonly with coarc that may send us looking for the diagnosis? Absolutely. So a bicuspid aortic valve is probably the most common associated lesion and occurs in around two-thirds of patients. They could also have supravalvular or subvalvular AS. Patients with Turner's and Williams syndrome can have coarctation of the aorta. Schoen complex, which is a series of left-sided obstructive lesions, can have coarctation as can um, patients with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. The majority of patients will present in infancy with varying degrees of heart failure. And adults will be asymptomatic, but will likely present with hypertension in adulthood. They'll have delayed or diminished femoral arterial pulses, and some people may rarely have claudication symptoms related to their coarctation. The murmur classically occurs at the left sternal border that radiates to the back, and they may have a thrill in the suprasternal notch. If they've developed arterial collaterals, you may also hear a continuous murmur. And then the most well-known is the upper extremity and lower extremity blood pressure discrepancy. Usually a gradient of around 20 millimeters of mercury is diagnostic. That's great, Natasha. I only would add a couple of clinical pearls that I've learned over the years. First, the classic murmur of coarctation is one that's continuous and it's just medial to the lateral border of the left scapula listening to the back. So it's kind of like a radiation of a murmur to the back, except for it's not. It's actually coming from the back. The other thing is that frequently people who've had a prior coarctation repair will have compromise of their right femoral artery as a result of cardiac catheterization during childhood. And so it's important not to just to check four, three extremity blood pressures, two arms and one leg, but to check all four because you may get a spuriously low reading in the right lower extremity. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Cedars. So just to progress the case forward, our patient, Mr. Cart, had an echo that showed left ventricular hypertrophy and normal LV systolic function. 
He was also noted to have no significant valvular disease. He did, however, have a 3.5 meter per second velocity jet noted in his descending aorta with diastolic runoff present, which was concerning for likely coarctation. Natasha, what are your thoughts on the echo and how do we proceed from here? Yeah, so this is definitely suspicious for coarctation of, you know, the 3.5 meter per second jet has correlates with a gradient of almost 50 millimeters across his descending aorta. And like I said earlier, anything greater than 20 is considered significant. So kind of ideal follow-up imaging would be a cardiac MRI to better evaluate the anatomy of his aorta. And so it looks like we did get a cardiac MRI that did dis- demonstrate a discrete narrowing at his aortic isthmus. It's really interesting and it definitely explains some of our findings that we had earlier on physical exam. But I think this is a good time to pause and talk for a second about the embryologic origin of coarct, one of our favorite parts of ACHD Cardinard series. An episode without it would be lacking. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So let's go way back and think about our first year of medical school when we were learning about embryology and fetal development. If you're anything like me, this is deep in the recesses of your mind. But the aortic arch and its branches develop at six to eight weeks fetal gestation. And in utero, we all start with actually six aortic arches that will go on to become the great arteries of the head and neck. So the arches one, two, and five ultimately regress and don't become anything notable. The third arch will persist as the common carotid arteries. The fourth arch ultimately forms the thoracic aortic arch and the isthmus area. And the sixth arch will persist as the proximal pulmonary arteries and the ductus arteriosus. So thoracic coarctation is a manifestation of abnormal development of the embryologic fourth and sixth aortic arches. To be clear, the underlying cause is not well understood, but there's kind of two competing theories, but neither of which is entirely satisfactory in explaining the etiology of coarctation. The two theories are the ductus tissue theory and the hemodynamic theory. So coarctation, like we said earlier, typically occurs at the site of insertion of the ductus arteriosus. So the ductus tissue theory proposes that coarctation develops as a result of the migration of ductal uh, smooth muscle cells into the periductal aorta, which causes subsequent constriction and narrowing of the aortic lumen. So this explains one of the types of aortic coarctation at the isthmus, but it doesn't explain some of the other kind of spectrum of disease that we see in other types of coarctation. So the hemodynamic theory proposes that coarctation develops because of hemodynamic disturbances that reduce the volume of blood flow through the fetal aortic arch. And so it's kind of the no flow, no growth theory. And it's intracardiac lesions that diminish the volume of left ventricular outflow will promote the development of coarctation in the fetus. It doesn't explain people who will have just isolated coarctation and no other congenital lesions that can change the fetal blood flow. So those are kind of the two competing theories, and neither one of them are perfect. And there's also some more genetic studies going on, but I don't think we know the exact cause. Yeah, I'd have to say, I don't know why the theories have to compete. I mean, why can't they both be true? And my guess is probably they both are true. The the theory of migration of smooth muscle cells is derives predominantly from the clinical observation in children who have coarctation that if they administer prostaglandins, it can keep the coarctation open for a period of time until an intervention can take place, particularly in very severe cases of coarctation. And the, the hypothesis supporting the no flow, no grow theory 
comes largely from the observation that coarctation seems to go along with pretty much any lesion where there is decreased flow traversing the isthmus or the area between the left subclavian and the ductus arteriosus. In fetal life, only about 10% of total cardiac output actually traverses that region. So you can understand why if organogenesis is in part flow dependent, that, that area is susceptible to hypoplasia if there's modest diminution in flow during development. In terms of genetics, you kind of wonder if there's some sex-linked component to coarctation given the male predominance and the fact that it's associated, associated with Turner syndrome. But I don't know, that it's probably polygenetic, and I don't think that the full genetics of coarctation has been worked out. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, this uh, no-flow, no-grow concept keeps coming up in every recording, so it's clearly a very important central tenet of ACHD and you know, came across our minds recently when we recorded about a case uh, of a patient with Schoen's complex that was you know, then presenting later in adult life with malady valve endocarditis. But, you know, thinking about the pathophysiology of Schoen's complex, I guess there's this thought that, you know, the primary issue may be obstruction to the LV inlet and the coarctation may be sort of a secondary no flow, no grow type phenomenon. But you know, clearly it's deeper than that. And, and Dr. Cedars, I wonder if you might speaking to this related issue that, you know, I guess in my mind, I always grew up to think of coarctation as a very focal, purely structural problem. But this idea that, you know, there's a, a broader vascular pathology that's involved with endothelial dysfunction and, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to know which came first, the chicken or the egg, if it's the individual during fetal development and early postnatal life has coarctation of the aorta, and this is somehow reprograms the homeostatic mechanism of the autonomic nervous system such that there are long-term predisposition to endothelial dysfunction, hypertension, what have you. Or if there's some genetic abnormality and coarctation that is responsible for aortic pathology. You know, I think probably in some, there's a bit of each. I think that in reality, this is probably a heterogeneous group of individuals with heterogeneous genetic backgrounds. And depending on the genetic background, the long-term sequela probably differ from patient to patient. Great. Thanks, Dr. Cedars. And so now that we've covered the reasons and the cause for the hypertension in these patients, you know, endothelial dysfunction, obstruction, maybe activation of RAS, how do we go about management itself, you know, with regards to medical management and the structural management? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, I think before we dive right into that, it's important to note that, you know, the natural history of untreated coarctation is quite poor. So, you know, studies demonstrate that people who have coarctation that wasn't treated will die at the mean age of 31. A quarter of these die from heart failure. A fifth die from aortic rupture. A fifth will die from endarteritis. And then about a tenth die from ruptured brain aneurysms. And so, you know, understanding how we can prevent this and, and treat it is definitely very important. Yeah, untreated coarctation has a lot of badness that can accompany it. I would say that those numbers sound quite dire, but I think that we have to keep in mind that this is, a, like I said, a heterogeneous group of patients. It's not binary. And so coarctation patients, classically, we say they present in one of three different scenarios. Either they present very shortly after birth in cases of very severe coarctation with symptoms of heart failure. There's a second group that may present in childhood with secondary hypertension. 
And then there's a third group who have probably quite mild coarctation of the aorta. And then as a result of some other genetic predisposition exacerbated by their presence of a coarctation, develop hypertension later in life. So I think that what Natasha's numbers are referring to are probably individuals in the, the first two groups. Those in the latter group, which are probably more reflective of the patient that we presented earlier, have probably a bit more benign prognosis. All that being said, patients with coarctation of the aorta are indeed prone to all of the terrible vascular complications that severe and untreated hypertension can have associated with it, including strokes, heart attack, accelerated coronary vascular disease, as well as a predisposition to aortic pathology, including both dissection and rupture. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Sears and Natasha, for walking us through, you know, not only that case, but sort of peppered with knowledge, even from embryologic origin through exam and diagnosis, and then talking about management and prognosis for these patients. If you had sort of three central takeaways that you could take from this case, Natasha, what would those be? So I think that first one is that in young patients who present with hypertension, coarctation should be on your differential. And on exam tip-offs for that include the murmur that we described. So continuous murmur at the left sternal border that you can hear at the back. And then also checking the femoral pulses and checking for extremity blood pressures in patients who are young with hypertension. The second one, unrepaired coarct has hemodynamic effects that are associated with a poor prognosis. So think about, you know, these patients effectively have persistent obstruction since birth that can lead to kind of chronic hypertension, heart failure, and all the um, comorbidities that go along with that. And then hypertension continues to be an issue post-repair for many patients. Dr. Cedar, so what would your approach to management be for Mr. Cart, our patient? So in individuals who are greater than the age of around 5 to 10, we usually recommend the catheter-based approach to treat coarctation of the aorta, which means putting a balloon up in this coarcted segment and putting a stent in, particularly in adults who put a stent in. And kids who still have some growing to do, you may not do so because obviously an adult-sized stent may not fit into a, a young child. Prior to the age of five, usually repair is surgical. And there are various different ways that coarctation of the aorta is approached surgically in childhood. The most commonly performed procedure nowadays is an end-to-end anastomosis, which basically means you remove the area of narrowing and then sew the two ends back together again. This is limited by the fact that you can only mobilize the aorta so much. It's got all sorts of branch vessels coming off of it. And so it only works in cases where there's a quite a short segment of narrowing. If there's a more long tubular segment of narrowing, that operation is obviously not viable. Other types of surgery that you will see are people who have what's called a subclavian flap repair or Waldhausen repair, where the left subclavian artery is sacrificed and used as material to put a patch on the aortic segment that is narrowed, allowing for it to be enlarged. And then, of course, there's just a simple patch technique where the aorta is patch enlarged, employing some foreign material, bovine pericardium or something else. Each of these procedures has a certain probability of long-term sequela. Those with an end-to-end repair have an increased probability of developing re later in life. They're obviously uh, pretty 
anticipated sequela which go along with subclavian repair, including subclavian steel if the individual has an intact vertebral artery remaining on the remnant of their left subclavian. And then individuals who had the patch repair, which is very infrequently performed anymore, had a predisposition to development of a aneurysm at the coarctation repair site. Wow, Natasha, great takeaways. And this was a great discussion about coarctation from the basics to the nuanced. But the fun don't stop. It's time to segue over to our next patient, Miss Connie Art. Miss Art is a talented 28-year-old female who has a history of coarctation of the aorta, status post, surgical repair in infancy, and a bicuspid aortic valve. She was last seen by her pediatric cardiologist five years ago, and she's now presenting to established care with adult cardiology after hearing that Dr. Cedars and Wolf joined as faculty in the CardioNerds Adult Congenital Heart Disease Clinic. She has been doing well overall, but notes that she gets more fatigued and a shorter breath with her regular aerobic workouts than previously. Heart rate is 75 beats per minute. Blood pressure at rest is 132 over 78 millimeters of mercury in the upper extremities and 125 over 79 millimeters of mercury in the lower extremities. Physical exam is unremarkable otherwise. Natasha, what are your thoughts and how shall we proceed? Well, it sounds like Miss Art hasn't had routine cardiology follow-up in five years, which unfortunately is pretty common for our patients after they transition out of the pediatric cardiology clinics. But she's now becoming symptomatic with some decreased functional status with exercise. You described an exam that's pretty unremarkable. She's normotensive at rest and doesn't have any evidence of significant recoarctation by upper extremity and lower extremity blood pressure readings. Oh, great, Natasha. So it sounds like other than this hefty dyspnea exertion she has, she has a normal exam. And so it sounds like it's going to be a quick visit. Should we just schedule her for a follow-up and see how she's doing in a year? I don't think so. Not so fast. Remember how we talked about patients with coarctation are increased risk of hypertension later in life, even after repair. So around 10 to 20% of these patients can get hypertension and the risk is greater in those who were repaired after age five. Uh, we don't know when she was repaired, but you know, even those who have blood pressure normal at rest, they may have hypertension that can be unmasked with exercise. And so we should consider probably an exercise stress test or an ambulatory blood pressure monitor to see if she has hypertension with exertion, because that may explain her symptoms. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in addition to a long-term risk of hypertension, there are other complications we must evaluate this patient for. As I alluded to earlier, each repair has its own kind of unique set of probable long-term sequela, including both recoarctation or persistent narrowing at the site of coarctation, which can occur in up to 10% of patients, as well as aneurysm development or pseudoaneurysm if there's damage at the repair site, which can develop. And so in patients like this, as Natasha alluded to, I typically will get uh, exercise blood pressure assessment, even if their blood pressure is normal at rest, and even if they have no evidence of repeat coarctation on four extremity blood pressure assessment, just to make sure that they haven't had a reset autonomic nervous system like I was talking about because frequently their blood pressures will shoot up with exercise, and that can be responsible for exertional dyspnea and chest pain. In addition to aneurysms of the aorta, somewhere between 8 and 10% of patients with coarctation will develop intracranial aneurysms, little berry aneurysms typically. And it's a 2B recommendation to screen the intracranial circulation for aneurysms, but I do it on pretty much all my patients. 
in particular individuals who are thinking of becoming pregnant, it's important to do a screening for intracranial aneurysms because this may have an impact on the mode of delivery downstream. And so I think that while coarctation seems to be a fairly straightforward and simple obstruction that gets relieved and then you can kind of go home and forget about it for the rest of your life, that's not actually the case. It's a complex process and there are multiple things that require long-term monitoring. Yes, sounds like there's a lot to consider here, even for patients who, like you said, Dr. Cedars, have had a prior repair, even with a seemingly normal baseline exam. Sounds like a stress test is the next best test. Dan, show me the data. I love that. I'm always the data person. (laughs) I'll say that one of the people that I learned from so much in terms of physical exam and understanding congenital heart disease at Hopkins before Dr. Cedar came along was Dr. Tom Trail, who basically gives this beautiful lecture on aortopathies and congenital lesions and then really highlights this point that an aortic patient is always an aortic patient. No matter if there was a surgical fix, you have to keep them in your clinic. You have to watch them and it can take years for anything to show up. So you really, really need to emphasize that surveillance. But yes, to what you're saying, um, Miss Art did undergo an exercise stress test. She did indeed have high blood pressure with exercise, 220 over 105 at peak exertion. And that was at 11 minutes into the bruise protocol. She also experienced shortness of breath and mild chest pain at this time. So what do I do with this? Where do we go from here? We, where we, we weren't looking at for coronary artery disease. So what do I do, Natasha? Show me the way. So it sounds like she definitely has uh, hypertension with exertion, which is the cause of her symptoms. Uh, I think we also need to better image her aorta. So, you know, the echo can evaluate her bicuspid valve and see kind of her ascending aorta, but we won't be able to kind of see likely the prior repair site. So, you know, we can use an echo to evaluate valvular pathology or other kind of associated congenital lesions, but we should also probably get MRI or a CT scan to kind of fully evaluate the course of the aorta and look to see if there's any associated aneurysms or evidence of recurrent coarctation. Current guidelines recommend that we do full aortic imaging at least every three to five years because you can miss some aortic pathology on echo alone. Oh, thanks so much for that advice. And luckily, we have our portable MRI scanner right here in the clinic. She actually had an MRI, which had demonstrated mild left ventricular hypertrophy with normal left ventricular systolic function. Bicuspid aortic valve was noted, of course, with mild aortic insufficiency and no aortic stenosis. There was no evidence of recoarctation, but she notably had a 5.3 centimeter aneurysm just proximal to the surgical site of the coarctation repair. What are we going to do with this now? Well... Considering her age and history, this is quite a large aortic aneurysm. Guidelines would suggest that surgical management is the path forward for ascending aortic aneurysms greater than 50 millimeters in diameter, in particular in those who have other risk factors for aortopathy. Although this is in the descending aorta, I still would be concerned about a woman of this age walking around with an aorta of that size, and I would have recommended her proceed to have surgical repair prophylactically so that she doesn't experience an aortic catastrophe. I would say as well that unless she had a patch repair of her aorta, I would be suspicious that there was some other pathology in her aorta that was responsible for this aneurysm and would send her for genetic screening. So we discover that she's got an aneurysm, and I guess it's not entirely surprising because some of the complications of repaired coarcs include recoarctation, aneurysms, hypertension, and MACE. But I guess I'm a little surprised to find that she has an aneurysm as opposed to a recoarct. Of course, the latter being 
a common cause or an important cause of new onset hypertension in patients with a repaired coarctation. So Dr. Sears, are you surprised that in this patient who's redeveloped this like, profound exertional hypertension, we found an aneurysm as opposed to a recoart? And, and why do you think she has this exertional hypertension at this point? Yeah, this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, either as a result of exposure of the carotid or aortic baroreceptors to hypertension during early life, or perhaps as a result of kind of chronic renal hypoperfusion during embryologic life and early postnatal life. The blood pressure barostat seems to be reset in patients who have coarctation in certain cases. And this is responsible for hypertension, even in individuals who don't have coarctation or repeat narrowing at the site of previous coarctation repairs. And so it's not surprising to me at all. I've had many patients with no evidence of repeat narrowing at their coarctation site who nevertheless have hypertension or with exertion. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Amit, for clarifying that. Thanks, Dr. Cedars, for helping us sort of picture and, and remember to think about hypertension, even with normal blood pressures with exercise. So proceeding with our case, again, this patient has a large aortic aneurysm. You alluded a little bit to the surgical management. Can you kind of break down in detail what that might look like? Yeah, typically we send patients to the vascular surgeons to have an aneurysmectomy. I've heard of cases of an interposition graft being employed in this scenario, but when we're talking about a 23-year-old woman who's otherwise healthy, I think that the most durable and most reliable long-term result would be obtained a more traditional aneurysmectomy with placement of an interposition graft. Great. So, Natasha, what happened with this particular patient? Just like Dr. Cedar said, she went with surgical management for her aneurysm and she had a great result. We also put her on a low-dose antihypertensive medicine to treat her hypertension with exercise to hopefully improve her exertional symptoms and improve her functional capacity. This should also help kind of reduce her long-term risks for MACE, so premature coronary disease strokes and heart failure. Great. Thanks, Natasha. So again, we talked about a lot of things with this patient presenting with recoarctation, starting from different things to look for on physical exam, walking through you know, making sure to they don't have exercise-induced hypertension, and then talking a little bit about the management as well. You had three quick takeaways from this case, sort of wrapping it up, what would they be? Absolutely. So one, care of patients doesn't end after they had their surgical coarc repair or their stent placed. Number two, recoarctation and aneurysm development are two important sequelae to think about in your returning repaired coarctation patients, particularly in those with concurrent bicuspid aortic valves. And number three, sometimes their blood pressure can be normal at rest, but elevate with exercise. So you should screen for this and treat it to prevent downstream complications, which drive the morbidity and mortality in these patients. That's fantastic. You know, I'm so glad that she was under your care and clearly she did very well. But hey, I just saw her on follow-up and she's feeling great and about to celebrate her very first anniversary she and her partner are thinking about growing their family. Dr. Cedars, are there any special considerations for preconception counseling in patients with repaired coarctation? Absolutely. So first recommendation is no oops babies. I caution all of my patients, regardless of their underlying anatomy, that we need to make sure that everything looks as good at the time when they want to become pregnant as it did at the time of their last visit. We also need to make sure that they're not on any medications which could be potentially toxic to a developing fetus, including many hypertensive medications, which I understand this patient started on. 
Women with coarctation traditionally are in World Health Organization group two or three if they have more severe obstruction. But in individuals who have had a repair and have no evidence of aneurysm or repeat coarctation at the repair site, probably pregnancy risk is not substantially greater than that of the general population. And while there was some early data from the Mayo Clinic which suggested that coarctation patients may be at risk for really bad things happening, the most recent data coming out of ROPAC, which for those of you who are not familiar, is a very large international registry of pregnancy complicated by heart disease. It's run out of Europe. There is a recent publication looking specifically at coarctation of the aorta in ROPAC, looking at some over 300 patients. And they found that the risks of pregnancy and coarctation are really not substantially greater than that of the general population, including, surprisingly enough to me, the risk of pregnancy-associated hypertension, which was only found to be just above 5%, which is actually kind of right in the, the same range that pregnancy-related hypertension occurs in the general population. So the, the take-home messages are you want to make sure that everything looks as good at the time you're trying to get pregnant, and you need to have your medication regimen optimized. Now, I would say one follow-up is that just because you have coarctation, you may also have other disease processes, particularly Turner syndrome, which is strongly associated with coarctation. There was a time when we thought that Turner syndrome was very problematic from the risk standpoint, again, based on older data, and that Turner's patients, because they have a known kind of fragile aorta, they would have an increased risk of aortic catastrophe with pregnancy. More recent data, however, have shown that actually Turner's patients, if they're able to get pregnant, which keep in mind, not all of them are, unless they're either a mosaic or they undergo some kind of uh, assistive reproductive technology, those patients who with Turner Center who get pregnant actually seem to do pretty well and don't seem to have a substantially increased risk of either aortic catastrophe during pregnancy or an increased risk of acceleration in aortic growth during pregnancy. Oh, yeah, I just saw there was a great JAG review paper that just came out talking about contraception in ACHD patients, which I think has been sort of an issue of focus in a lot of these patients, especially given the difficulties with transitioning them from the sort of pediatric to adult setting. I was just curious, Dr. Cedars, if you had sort of any advice for treating fellows or even for ACHD physicians as to sort of when you start talking about, you know, family planning or contraception with your patients. I feel like I'm doing a disservice if I don't discuss family planning and contraceptions with my patients who are women of childbearing age, obviously, at their first visit, because you never know what can happen. And somebody, it doesn't take very long to become pregnant. And so if you let somebody leave your office the first time that you see them without having this discussion, then I think that's problematic. So anybody with any underlying cardiac disease who is of childbearing age should have this discussion. Great. Thank you. What a spectacular and comprehensive discussion this has been. Now that clinic is closed and we're all grabbing some delicious, low-carb, low-calorie frappuccinos, we get to ask a question that we ask all our series experts. Dr. Cedars, what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? Well, that's easy. It's the patient's. You know, you said that I was a historian in college, and unfortunately, I had to abandon that career pathway. However, I enjoy the fact that each patient has kind of a unique history, and it's wonderful to be able to learn about patients, interact with the patients, and become a part of this patient's life. These are people who are going to be with me, hopefully, 
throughout the duration of my practice. So, you know, form long-term relationships with patients and, and patients each have a unique story. That's wonderful, Dr. Cedars. You know, if there's one thing that's been a recurring theme of why so many of our ACHD experts have gone into the field, it's that their connection with their patients, you know, because you take care of them for their whole life. You know, this field is such a broad one with so many overlaps with other specialties. So Natasha, we'd love to hear about your experience as an ACHD fellow and career plans moving forward. Absolutely. So I'm almost done with my first year of ACHD fellowship. It's a two-year fellowship following general cardiology fellowship. And so far, it's been my favorite year of training. I really have time to like sit down and think about patients and read and learn. And I've gotten to spend time at the pediatric hospital and, and really learn all about these great surgeries that we do to get these people to grow into adults and come to our clinic and have us take care of them. And it's just been a great experience so far. So I ultimately have an interest in cardioobstetrics within ACHD, as well as a single ventricle physiology. So patients who have Fontan palliation and ultimately helping them get advanced therapies. So either typically transplantation, but also potentially bridging them with temporary mechanical device support. So ACHD, I think, is a great field, and we are going to need more and more people to do it and take care of our patients. Great. Thank you so much for sharing with us your passion for congenital heart disease. And Natasha, I know we're all really excited to see your career grow and see what you do within the field. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today. This was a really wonderful episode, and we'll see you next time for our next episode. Sounds great. Thanks for inviting me. That's a wrap. I have one last question. Dan, do the Frappuccinos have to be low carb, low calorie? I mean, if you're going to go for it, you might as well go for it. Yeah, but it's a slippery slope because once you start, trust me, I know. I know what happens. I feel the same way about ACHD. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Karen Stout. I'm an ACHD nerd at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I'm a member of the Medical Advisory Board with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. Not long ago, congenital heart disease was widely considered to be an exclusively pediatric field, given the short lifespan of our patients. However, advances in diagnosis and management have transformed many patients' lives and brought them into adulthood. There are now more adults living with CHD than children. This growing population requires a specialized and personalized approach from multidisciplinary teams. While not every cardio nerd will specialize in ACHD, you will all have the opportunity to touch the lives of adult patients with congenital heart disease, recognize their unique needs, and refer them to the appropriate centers if and when needed. We need both trainees eager to care for this patient population and non-ACHD providers to have fundamental knowledge about these conditions for optimal practice while working in tandem with board-certified adult congenital heart disease providers. We congratulate the cardio nerds on their mission to democratize cardiovascular education and for creating this series to raise awareness about ACHD. I'm glad to say that this episode and all others in this series are brought to you in collaboration with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. ACHA's mission is to empower the CHD community by advancing access to resources and specialized care that improve patient-centered outcomes. The cardio nerds have clearly done that here. If you'd like to contribute to ACHA to provide educational resources, opportunities to connect with other providers, become a part of the Medical Advisory Board, or apply for ACHA research funding, please email info at achaheart.org. Again, email is info at achaheart, all one word, dot org. 
If you're interested in learning more about clinical congenital heart disease diagnosis and management, please note that there are free educational online resources available to Heart University and the Congenital Heart International Professionals, or CHIP, networks. Both have tremendous resources to provide further depth to your understanding of ACHD. You can find more about the ACHA, CHIP, and HeartUniversity.com in the episode description on the CardioNerds website. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.